Hi everyone and welcome to episode 30 of Infraction. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today's case starts in 1998 and it starts with a first date between Diane Beasley and a man named John Smith. Diane Beasley was a hopeless romantic. She had been raised to believe that the order of life was to get married and have babies and live happily ever after. Unfortunately, this was something that had not worked out for her in the past. She had married three times and had children, but unfortunately each marriage had ended in divorce instead of the fairy tale she'd hoped for. Therefore, when meek and mild John Smith asked her out on a date, she decided to go with it, even though she knew he wasn't really her type. She went to dinner with him and their conversation flowed. She started to relax a bit and realised that maybe looks weren't everything. The couple dated a few more times and soon John started to open up about his life. He said that he'd moved back to California from Ohio when his wife had passed away. Diane was taken aback by this because she hadn't realised that he'd been married before. John said that he'd been married twice. His first wife had divorced him and his second wife had died of cancer, a tragic death that he was still emotional about. Mm. This made Diane fall for John a bit more. Here was someone like her, someone who had also been unlucky in love. His compassion when he spoke about his second wife, her name had been Fran, touched Diane and she began to open up to John even more. Diane's friends also commented that, whilst John was certainly not Diane's usual type, he seemed nice and kind. They told Diane that they thought he seemed quite lonely and Diane agreed, feeling sorry for him. She really felt that he was just a bit lost. After their initial few dates, things started to move quickly and to Diane's shock, just six weeks into dating, John proposed to her. Diane didn't know what to say. On the surface, she didn't really know this man and she even admitted to friends that she wasn't even that attracted to him, but something about him made her want to say yes. She felt that maybe he would be good for her. He was sweet and charming and she felt like maybe he could be the stability in her life that she needed. Therefore, she said yes. If this wasn't the start of a true crime podcast episode, it would be quite a touching story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is so true. <laughs> Real fairy tale up until this point. <laughs> so on September the 8th, 1998, the couple married in a small ceremony in front of friends. After the wedding, they moved in with each other and she moved into his home. She was shocked to see that he had a large picture on the wall of his second wife, Fran. John asked Diane if he should remove the picture, but Diane realised that maybe this was just part of his grieving process and she said it was fine for him to leave it up. She said that she understood that this was an important part of his past. Apart from that small minor issue, Diane loved being married to John. The couple did lots of exploring together and spent their weekends jet-setting around. Diane had grown up in San Diego, so exploring California with John was exciting for her. She loved going to the different beaches and seeing the sea. Things were looking good for the couple. After a short while, Diane decided that she really wanted to buy another home, one that they could call theirs, opposed to the one they currently lived in that felt more like just his. Luckily for her, John had plenty of money, and so the couple started house hunting. They found a home that they liked, and Diane put in an application to lease it. All seemed to be going well, until the apartment manager phoned her and asked her to come to her office. When she arrived, she showed Diane John's credit report, it was pages long of debt after debt. Diane was utterly shocked by this. As far as she was aware, John had always acted and told her that he was financially very secure. 
This report, however, showed a dozen properties in his name that had outstanding payments due on them, as well as a huge number of credit card bills that still hadn't been paid. Is this the story of Dirty John? (laughs) Oh, shit, is it? I don't know. Is this a similar start, isn't it? Oh, fuck off. Have you seen Dirty John? I've not seen it. Yeah. Oh, no, I think her name was Deborah. No, no, John Meehan. No, no, because he, he didn't fake that he was a doctor. Okay, phew, no, it's not that. Oh, my God, thank God for that. Yeah. As you were. Oh, my God, that... <laughs> Honestly, I'd be the mug who'd research this entire podcast and not realise that there was a Netflix <laughs> documentary about it. <laughs> right. That really got me worried. Okay. Diane was devastated to realise that the couple wouldn't be able to rent anywhere or buy anywhere because they'd never be able to get a mortgage with John's terrible credit report. Diane spoke to John that evening, angry and upset that he had lied to her. John, however, promised her that the debts weren't his. He said that he had taken them over from a relative when his relative couldn't pay their bills. He then said that it didn't matter, Diane shouldn't worry, he had plenty of money and he could buy her a house outright. He said it would just take a bit more time for him to save up and get his things in order, but then he'd buy her a new home. Diane accepted this and tried to focus on their marriage and being the best wife she could be. This was difficult, however, because John seemed to be spending all of his spare time on his computer. He told her he was working, but it frustrated her a lot because every time she went into the study to talk to him, he'd switch his computer screen off, which she said really wound her up. Adding to this, she was frustrated that they no longer went out and explored places anymore. They barely did anything together and she felt as if her honeymoon period was already over so soon. Diane's daughter from her previous marriage, Summer, also felt that John had started acting very weirdly. She said that when she was alone in the house with John, he'd act very differently. He'd be angry and get irritated easily and hit things. However, as soon as Diane came home, Summer said that his attitude changed straight back into his mild and meek persona. Summer spoke to her mother about this and told her that she was worried about John's changing personality, but Diane told her that she was just being overprotective and was worrying for no reason. Diane said that she hadn't ever seen a hint of an angry side to John. However, this was all about to change. One day, the couple went out for dinner. They decided to go in different cars as John was going to be back late, and so the couple agreed that they should just meet at the restaurant. They had a nice dinner and left separately in their cars. Diane pulled out first and started driving. When she got to a traffic light, she stopped and looked in her rearview mirror. The man in the car behind her was hitting his steering wheel and thrashing around and shouting his head off. Diane was absolutely shocked to realise that this man having this raging fit was in fact John. She sat there completely confused. She'd never seen him this angry before and couldn't imagine what had caused him to erupt like that. Her daughter's words about his strange personality and behaviour started to sneak into her head. When they got home, she asked him about it, but John denied all of it and said that she was mistaken and that it hadn't been him. By May 1999, things started to get even worse. Diane was working as a secretary in a company when two men in suits came in and asked to speak to her. These men asked her if she was Diane Smith, and she said yes. The men then revealed that they were from the FBI. They asked Diane what she knew about Betty Fran Gladden Smith, John's second wife. Diane said that John had told her that his second wife had gone by her middle name Fran and that she died of cancer and that John was still really sad about it. The two men looked at each other and then turned to Diane. They told her that Fran had never had cancer. They said that the FBI were investigating the suspicious disappearance of not only Fran Gladden-Smith but also Janice Hartman, John's first wife. 
they revealed that John's first wife Janice had been missing since 1974, just a few days after she'd filed for divorce from him, and that his second wife Fran had disappeared in New Jersey in 1991. The investigators said that they didn't believe that Fran had run away because she'd had a broken hip at the time she disappeared and she couldn't walk. Diane was obviously heartbroken, dumbfounded and shocked to her core. She decided the FBI must have been wrong. John wasn't angry, he wasn't mad and he wasn't a murderer. He was kind and he was sweet. She phoned John and asked for an explanation and he talked her around. He told her that he had also been spoken to by the FBI, but that they'd let him go years ago as they had no evidence. This calmed Diane's nerves a bit. If they'd talked to him and let him go, then surely that meant they didn't have anything on him. But why would he not admit this when they first met? I mean, I know it's not a great first impression on a date, but at the point that you're marrying someone, you'd think he might mention, oh, by the way, I don't actually know that my second wife died. Yeah, so that's what Diane said. She kind of turned around and said, like, why did you tell me that Fran died of cancer? Because obviously he'd, like, kind of had this very emotional confession to Diane that Fran had died of cancer. Um, But he basically said that he'd lied about it because he thought that his friend had killed his wife Fran and he said that the FBI was framing him um, for the murder and he said that he'd lied to Diane to protect her. Wow. (laughs) Yes. So Diane actually did believe her husband for no other reason really than she just couldn't believe that he could kill someone or make someone disappear. She stayed in this state of blissful ignorance until she received a letter in the mail from Fran's sister. She'd put her number in the letter and so Diane called her. It's unclear what was said on the phone call, but whatever it was, Diane put down the receiver no longer believing that her husband was innocent. Diane reached out to the FBI and they told her to keep herself safe by ensuring that she didn't agitate John or rile him up and she had to focus on not arousing John's suspicions. They were convinced that if she changed her position now and told him she believed the FBI, he would lose control and possibly injure or murder her too. They couldn't arrest him yet as they needed more evidence and so Diane had to sit and wait and live in the house with a man she was certain had killed his last two wives. Luckily, she didn't have to wait too long. This was because, on May 15th, Michael Smith, John's younger brother, spoke to the FBI about his brother John. He revealed a secret that he had been hiding about his brother for years. Michael told investigators that soon after Janice went missing, John became obsessed with carving and building a wooden box in their grandfather's garage. John told Michael that the box was to put Janice's belongings in, ready for when she eventually returned to him. In 1979, Michael received a call from his grandfather and asked him to come over straight away. His grandfather led Michael to the wooden box that John had carved and asked him to open it. Inside was the dismembered skeletal remains of a woman who had nothing left but her hair. Oh my God, what a horrible... Michael felt sick and was sure it was Janice. He told his grandfather that he thought John had murdered Janice and told him to call the police. His grandfather reportedly punched him in the face and questioned where his loyalties lay. He told him that he couldn't betray a family member like that and that he wasn't to speak to the police. He also said that this news would kill his grandmother, who had just suffered a heart attack. Instead of calling the police, his grandfather called John, and John quickly came over to the house to pick up the box. What he did with it next, Michael did not know. Why would you leave the box available for everyone to see? in the first place i mean i know that's not the point here but (laughs) um i don't know if it was necessarily available to everyone to see but it was 
Um, it wasn't buried, which is traditionally what you would do with a box. Yeah, no, it wasn't buried. Um, well, it's kind of hard to tell. So this was probably five years after um, Janice had gone missing. So probably like we can presume five years after she'd been murdered. Um, so yeah, it does kind of seem that her body had just been sat in that box um, in his grandfather's garage for that long. But I mean, like five years is a long time for it to go unnoticed. Maybe John just thought that, mm. you know, it was quite a good, decent hiding place because no one was looking for it. Mm. Um. So the police started their search for this box, certain that it was the evidence they needed to put John behind bars. However, after searching for seven months, they still had nothing. The pressure Diane was facing was huge. She was still living with John, fearful of him every day. It had gotten to the point where she just couldn't do it anymore. The energy it took for her to fake happiness with this man was too much. And so, at a loss as to what to do, she secretly went behind John's back to get their marriage annulled. Oh no, Bad idea. Is she getting any support from the FBI at this point? Because I understand they don't have enough to arrest him and who knows, maybe the information that John will give Diane could be crucial to his arrest. But equally, they are putting her in a hugely vulnerable situation, particularly, as you've just said, it's kind of encouraging her to go against what they've said. She's like, you know, that pressure has forced mm. her to go behind his back, get his marriage annulled, which I'm really scared at this point already is going to result in him finding out, losing his cool and something awful happening. And you just mm -hmm. kind of wonder if really the what the FBI has done here is completely appropriate. Yeah, I totally understand that. I think from their point of view, to me, it seems like they're more thinking if she stays, he's going to stay. Like if she acts like she's not suspicious of him, then he's not going to get suspicious that we're kind of on to him um, and that we know about this box and things like that. And then we know where he is for when we can arrest him because their issue has always been they lose him, you know, like he moves states a lot and things like that. So right now, I, I guess they're mm. thinking he's settled and he's there and we know exactly where to go to arrest him when we eventually get enough evidence. But I definitely agree. It's putting her in a very, very vulnerable, really, really shitty position. Um, and it's very dangerous as well. So I would presume, and I don't know, but I would I would presume that she is at this point talking to them about what's going on. Yeah. Um, but they're also kind of not putting her in a position where they're asking her to uh, try to record conversations secretly and things like that. They don't go that far as to kind of push her into that. They've kind of basically said, you just need to keep acting as, you, as you've always been acting. You're just happily married. Just forget about all this stuff kind of thing, all this stuff that you've learned um, and just carrying as normal. But obviously that has put her in a, awful situation and it's not you know that's a hard thing to fake uh faking that you're not scared of someone going to bed with someone every night that you're not scared of them that's terrifying actually and for seven months at this point it's been going on for it's a really long time yeah awful so that's why she went behind his back to get their marriage annulled and this is a process that can be done without john's knowledge so basically up until the very last moment when he would have to be served with the papers that said that their marriage had never happened so on the 17th of December 1999, Diane knew that John was going to be served with these annulment papers. Uh, therefore, what she did was she holed herself up in their apartment with her daughter, Summer. She changed the locks so that John wouldn't be able to get in. And Summer and Diane hid their cars out on different roads and shuttled the blinds so it would look like they weren't home. John Smith arrived home absolutely fuming after he'd received these papers. Summer was peeking out the window and she said that his entire face had changed. She said that he looked like a monster and Diane immediately called the police. John started body slamming himself against their front door until he'd managed to splinter the door frame. 
He got inside and charged at Diane and started screaming at her. Then, out of the corner of his eye, he saw Summer standing in the kitchen. John's demeanour completely changed. He abruptly stopped still and calmly said to Diane, Baby, you don't need to do this. I can explain. I don't want to get divorced. His face became calm and his body relaxed. Diane knew at that moment that if her daughter hadn't been there, she would have been dead. She said in one interview, The face of that monster, John Smith, was the same monstrous face those other two women saw right before they died. Diane told him to leave, and much to her surprise, he did. The police arrived at the scene and she explained what had happened. They told her that she'd done the right thing and that they'd help look after her. She was crying and upset and wanted to know why, after seven months since Michael's confession, they still hadn't got any evidence on John. The police essentially had hit a wall with their investigation. There was no sign of the box. The police had searched everywhere around the home of John and Michael's late grandfather. In a last-ditch attempt to get answers on the body in the box, the police sent round letters to other state police officers to ask them if they'd found a Jane Doe in a box. One policeman in Indiana saw the letter and asked his team if any of them had heard of anything like this. An older officer revealed that he had known of a case like this. He said that in 1980, workmen had been digging up a pavement in Indiana and they'd come across a wooden box. He said inside the box had been a skeleton and the poor woman's body had never been claimed. He remembered that the box had been very small and that the woman's legs had been cut off to fit her inside it. He said that she had never been identified and she'd been known by the media as just the lady in the box. Because her identity had never been revealed, she had been buried in an unmarked grave and had seemingly been forgotten about until now. The investigators had her body exhumed from the unmarked grave and they did some DNA testing on her. Her DNA testing proved that the lady in the box was Janice Hartman, John Smith's first wife, who had been missing by this point for 26 years. Wow. A grand jury was convened to review the evidence in John's case. As part of the police's tactics, they got Michael to phone his brother John to tell him that he'd been subpoenaed to testify at the grand jury and they recorded the call to gauge John's reaction. In the call, Michael can be heard saying stuff like, Oh my God, you won't believe this, but that bastard FBI agent Bob Hilland has subpoenaed me. I got to go to New York and testify against you. To this, John says, holy shit. And then Michael said, you know, I'm going to tell them the truth. I'm going to tell them that me and granddad saw you building a box and then we opened it and we found Jan in it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to jail for you, John. It really kind of seems that John might have suspected that Michael was being recorded because he remained very, very calm during this call. He kind of laughs it off and he said, it wasn't Jan in the box. Someone dropped that box off as a joke. And Michael's kind of like, no, 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 we opened the box. It was Jan in there. Her fucking legs were cut off. And then he goes, do you want me to continue? To which John calmly responded with no. However, John wasn't quite as smart as he thought because all the police needed was John's acknowledgement that the box existed and that's what he'd given them. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. Good. So at that point, all they had was Michael saying that he'd seen John do this. At this point, their grandfather had passed away. So, um... They didn't have his word for it or anything like that. And it's very unlikely probably anyway that he would have kind of testified against that. But what they needed was for John to acknowledge that the box had actually existed so they could actually connect him to it. Because otherwise it could have been easily probably argued that maybe Michael had done it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just surprised that that was going to be like enough evidence. I thought they might need, yeah, a confession or whatever. Mm-hmm. So no, mm. I'm pleased. <laughs> 
So, on October 3rd, 2000, John was arrested at his place of work in Escondido, California, for the murder of Janice Hartman. At his trial, it was revealed that Janice had filed for divorce after John had attempted to rape her. It was revealed by Janice's brother that John had been physically abusive towards Janice on several occasions before this attempted rape, but it was this sexual assault that had made Janice realise how violent John could be and she wanted nothing to do with him anymore. Just three days after filing for divorce, Janice had disappeared. John Smith denied this and said that she had packed a small red suitcase and took off to Florida to leave him. He said he played no part in her disappearance, that he hadn't cared that she tried to divorce him. Michael testified that John had always told him that Janice had gone into a witness protection program because she was about to testify against a large drug ring and that his stories of Janice just taking off to move to Florida were not what John had ever told his family. Michael also testified that the box Janice had been found in was definitely the box he'd seen his brother making. He also spoke about the series of events that we just discussed earlier, about when he'd found the box with Janice's body inside it in his grandfather's garage. The court heard how the box had been found on the far side of a 20-foot ditch beside a road that was so remote that some days no cars would even drive through it. The box had been found by complete chance by some road workers who just happened to be working in the area. With regards to Fran's disappearance, the judge ruled that the prosecution could not raise any evidence in relation to that. This was hurtful to Fran's family, although they did say that if he would be put away for Janice's murder, that would at least be something. At his trial, it was revealed that when he was arrested, his belongings were searched and a locker belonging to him had unidentified skull fragments inside it and two photos of unidentified women. Oh. The skull fragments were tested through DNA and familial DNA to see if they matched Janice or Fran, but they didn't match either woman. The police revealed at this point that they were worried that the victim was one of the unidentified women in the photos, but after a long search, both women have been identified and they were found alive. As far as I can tell, the skull fragments have never been connected to a third victim. With regards to his marriage to Diane Beasley, it was revealed at his trial that he had been having multiple online affairs with other women and the nature of these relationships was very controlling. It was posed to the court that John Smith had an obsession with gaining control over women and they said that when women responded to that negatively or fought back, his anger would peak and he would snap. They said that this is what happened with regards to Janice and Fran and they said that the reason it didn't happen to Diane was because she had been made aware of this fact by the police and had actively not challenged him. On July 19th, 2001, John Smith was found guilty of the murder of Janice Hartman. She'd been just 23 years old when she died. Oh my God, I didn't realise that. It's really, really sad because they got married when they were just like 19. Blimey. So at this trial in 2001, there was no evidence to charge him with Fran's disappearance or murder, but her family did not give up hope. Fran was 49 when she disappeared from West Windsor, New Jersey in 1991. Fran and John had married just two months after meeting, not too dissimilar to Diane and John, and she had disappeared just 18 months after their wedding. As I mentioned earlier, at the time of her disappearance, she had been bedbound recovering from a broken hip, and her daughter had become worried when she couldn't get a hold of her mother. She called John at work and asked where her mother was, and John said that he'd thought she was with her. He said that she had left a note saying that she was going to see her daughter and told him to remember to feed the fish. He said her suitcase was missing and he wasn't worried about her, despite the fact that this woman couldn't even walk. John started coaching friends and family and told them not to reveal anything to the police. 
He convinced them that he was the victim because his wives had left him and the police were out to get him. This actually worked and the police were shut down at almost every turn when it came to interviewing friends and family. The police eventually interrogated John Smith a few years after Fran's disappearance. They used lots of tactics to get him to open up, but just as they were about to get a confession from him regarding Fran's death, he curled up into a ball and faked a heart attack. The police had no choice but to stop the interrogation and take him to hospital. Fran's daughter and sister were instrumental in bringing down the case on John Smith. Without their persistence and hard work to try and find out what had happened to Fran, it's likely that Janice Hartman's body would never have been identified and that John would still be free. In 2005, Fran's sister wrote a book called My Sister is Missing, Bringing a Killer to Justice. Amazingly, in 2002, Fran's daughter won a civil lawsuit against John Smith for Fran Gladden Smith's wrongful death and she was awarded $1 million. However, due to the fact that John was and is still completely bankrupt, it's likely she'll never receive this money. This civil suit was really positive though because what it did was it held John accountable for Fran's disappearance and her presumed death and it showed the family that if they pushed and pushed they might be able to get somewhere. And thankfully, after almost 20 years... In 2019, they got what they had hoped for, because John Smith, aged 68 and still in prison, was indicted for the murder of Fran Gladden-Smith. Based on what? So, the West Windsor police had said that they'd continuously been investigating Fran's murder in the background, um, and that they'd always wanted to indict John Smith, but they just basically didn't have the manpower to work the case. But that changed Mm. in, I think it was about 2017, when that police team met with the FBI and the FBI worked with the West Windsor police to kind of put together a case that could be successfully presented to a grand jury. Um, Because obviously a nobody murder case is incredibly hard to um, prosecute. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I was so surprised. I was thinking that you were going to end there saying that they'd got the civil suit, but that was all they managed. No, so they they have indicted him. So the grand jury found basically that there was enough evidence against John Smith to indict him. I can't find anywhere what evidence they've used. And I think that's because the FBI um, and probably the police are keeping it under wraps until the trial goes ahead. Um, but he was indicted in November 2019 in Mercer County on first degree murder charges and a fourth degree tampering with evidence charge in relation to the disappearance of Betty Frank Gladden-Smith. Um, and this case hasn't gone any further. Um, I presume probably due to COVID and like all these things take a really long time to, to go ahead and get to court. But obviously it mm. certainly is a step in the right direction to get justice for Fran and her family. Absolutely. And you'd like you said, I think it's such an unusual conviction to get that hopefully they do have quite a lot of evidence. And I mean, there's a fair bit there already. She's a woman with a broken hip who disappeared off the face of the earth having been married to a man who murdered his previous wife Mm -hmm. so there's definitely a lot of circumstantial evidence if you will there already but hopefully with the help of the FBI they have got something quite substantive that means they're willing to take this to a grand jury because it is it shouldn't be about money but unfortunately a lot of the time these cases are aren't they and actually they quite often won't go that far unless they think there's quite a reasonable chance of winning. So I think that's really, really positive that, particularly for her family, that it's made it to this point and he has been indicted and there will be a trial. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's so positive. Um, It always weirds me out though when people can like, I know I, I, I kind of understand the reasoning by it, like behind it, but it does make me feel weird when people can win civil suits but not criminal suits in like kind of the same case do you know what i mean Mm, yeah and we don't have it so much here or do we 
No, not really as much. Not really as much at all. I, it's really expensive. I mean, it's very expensive in America too. But I think um, a lot of the times here, people just don't bother bringing civil suits or they bring it, but they settle it outside of court. So um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, they normally just get settled before it kind of gets to that point. And you don't hear about it so much, I guess, as well. Yeah, then. most of the time, like, NDAs and things like that are signed because um, that's the whole point of settling, really. Um, or Also, because you know it's the idea that when you get to trial if you were to lose then you might um have to pay out a substantially higher sum um but yeah a lot of the time it's also to keep the um anonymity behind it yeah and i suppose if you settle it's not such a strict admission of no, guilt no, exactly. is it so then i guess does it influence a criminal trial mm-hmm. less yeah yeah no i don't yeah i think it's it's i don't know how the civil suit will um impact the criminal trial against john smith um but i mean kind of like you said there's his it's not really going to look like it is going in his favor because circumstantially there is like a lot of evidence against him and i think any jury hearing that he's in prison for murdering his first wife and then finding out that his second wife disappeared um under very peculiar circumstances i think it's enough to make any jury really see or it's, it's a it's a uh kind of what's the word story if you will that the jury can get behind and can understand can't they so absolutely and even if say the trial judge said oh you can't take into account the fact he's got a previous conviction etc i think you'd be pretty pressed to find any human that could make a completely unbiased decision that wasn't slightly influenced by knowing yeah his history because actually it does speak to the this new case doesn't mm-hmm. it um and actually but i just think on like a very basic human level i don't think we're capable of ignoring such a kind of glaring elephant in the yeah, room I, de- I definitely agree with that it's hard though because i imagine they like you said i think that they probably would say that you can't use his past convictions against him even though they're very relevant obviously because it's like a pattern of past behavior it shows his previous bad character and all the rest of it um but i imagine um if his lawyers are kind of worth anything they would definitely try to get that um thrown out as it were yeah well all they have to do is mention it and even if it's like overruled or objected yeah. in the court ultimately the jury still mm-hmm. heard it they still know about mm-hmm. it and a lot of the time when they're told not to include something it tends to have a bigger impact on the decision making yeah, process yeah. just because i don't know how our brains work absolutely as soon as you're told not to think about something you think about it don't you that's why diet is so mm-hmm. bloody hard <laughs> <laughs> so slightly jumping backwards mm. then what became of diane because i mean i know she's escaped a horrible Mm. fate but she still has been through a pretty traumatic experience yeah yeah uh so where are we now we're like two decades after all of this has kind of like happened after his trial and things like that um and i read that diane um remarried and she remarried a name uh, a man named robert and um i think they're still married now and they've been married for almost 20 years now which is really really sweet and she said in an interview that she finally got her happily ever after that she'd always hoped for which is so nice because obviously that is all she wanted in john and that's what she really was trying and fighting so hard to get in her like marriage with john um she said that she spends her time with her children and grandchildren um and actually, in 2002, John tried and failed to appeal his conviction for Janice's murder. But then in 2010, um, his first parole hearing was heard. And Diane actually wrote a letter to the parole board to basically state her position, um, explain how she felt and 
tell the parole board that she thought that he should remain behind bars and um a large part of it was down to her letter but um his parole was denied um although he is actually once again due for parole in just a few months time although i'm i don't know what bearing it has on the fact that he's now got this um other he's now been indicted on this other murder charge i don't know if that is allowed to sway the parole board and things like that i'm not really sure how it works actually thinking about it now no, and whether if he wasn't already in prison, would he be being held somewhere mm-hmm. based on the indictment, etc. They've got to be a bit inextricably linked, you'd mm-hmm. think. But either way, I'm quite confident that he isn't about to be let yeah, out. Yeah, no, well, exactly same. So hopefully that is the case. Um, and yeah, Fran's family are really, really pleased that they have obviously finally got this um, indictment. And it's so many years later. I mean, she went missing in 1991. Um, so I think we can all kind of assume that she was unfortunately murdered in 1991. So it's been such a long time for her family. And like I said earlier, like they're fighting to get justice for Fran. Um, so it was Fran's daughter from a previous marriage and Fran's sister. Um, but their fighting to get justice for her really did kind of bring down the case on John for his for Janice's murder. And as far as I can tell, Janice didn't really have a lot of family who were out there fighting for what happened to her. So I just think it's so lovely that after 26 years, her body was identified and she did kind of get you know, the funeral and like the justice that she deserved rather than just being like a, a person buried in an unmarked grave um, with everyone kind of seemingly having forgot about her. So I think, yeah, in, in a way, this is all kind of like come round to a very nice ending, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. Right, I think it's quite clear that I can't speak anymore, so should we wrap this up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that is it. That's episode 30. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. And in a shocking announcement... Uh, we will be taking <laughs> a week off next week because I am finally, after many years, moving house. So bear with me for one week where I get my life back into some form of order. It's not in a lot to start with, so it shouldn't take me too long. Um, uh, yeah, and then we will be returning to your screens um, the week afterwards. And also in an exciting turn of events, we should very soon have some Patreon content coming out for you. Mm-hmm. So we have decided um, in terms of Patreon content, we are going to do a sort of wind down episode at the end of each of our cases. So um, if you guys want that extra content each week, there will be coming out weekly and it will be answering your questions, having a general chit chat um, and discussing either the case that we've talked about, other cases um, and answering all your questions. So it will be definitely a lot more lighthearted because we are aware that it's hard times for everyone at the moment with the current situation that's going on and so sometimes it is nice to just have something a bit more lighthearted. um it will be unedited and um yeah it will be unscripted unresearched it will just be a little bit of lightheartedness at the end of each episode so if you guys are gonna miss hearing our beautiful voices <laughs> by next week then you can sign up to patreon and there'll be extra content on there for you there and then it will come every week after that so yeah very exciting <laughs> That just sounded like you hit a soundboard button. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, guys, for listening. We'll see you in two weeks' time, or we'll see you next week over on Patreon. Bye. (laughs) Bye.